Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, a serious XM podcast available everywhere. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I don't know if I am ready for life without masks, just being honest. But it looks like it's happening whether I'm ready or not. So I am very pleased to announce 11.59 p.m. on February 28th, we will end the provincial mask mandate. Effective March the 1st, we intend to eliminate capacity limits in all indoor public settings. Because the, the trends look so good that we can anticipate removing uh, mask, mandatory masking uh, by the end of March. For the record, I don't particularly like wearing masks. Who does, really? But I do like the reassurance that there is something tangible that I can control in between me and whomever might be spreading COVID near me. On the surface, though, I can see the reasons the mandates are ending, even if I don't love that. Cases are down. So are hospitalizations. The weather is warming up, making outdoor options easier. And it sure seems like everyone has by now either been fully vaccinated or caught COVID. So if not now, when? Of course, I am not an expert. I am just somebody who is completely sick of this pandemic, but also nervous about removing restrictions and mandates too fast and doing this whole thing over again and again and again. So let's ask an expert. Is it time? And if not, why not? And when? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Raywat Dianandan is a global health epidemiologist and an associate professor with the Interdisciplinary School of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. He's been one of the people we've trusted to give us clear advice during this pandemic. Hello, Dr. Dianandan. Hello, how are you? I'm doing okay. I'm a little nervous about the ending of basically <laughs> all restrictions. Yeah, as am I. <laughs> Can't blame you. Well, let me be blunt then off the top. Should provinces like Alberta and Ontario be ending mask mandates before the end of March here? Uh, No, I don't think they should for a number of reasons. First is that I don't like it when we're linking these decisions to calendar dates and not to some objective indicators or criteria that we can measure in the population. But also, if you look at when the mask mandates were first introduced, it was when we had about 150 cases per day in Ontario. We now have over 2,000 cases per day. Mm -hmm. We have over 160 cases per day right here in Ottawa, where I live. So I don't know what the rationale is anymore for uh, removing the mask if it's not to curtail transmission, and we have runaway transmission right now. But we have seen, and this is where I play devil's advocate because uh, I'm a little nervous, as I mentioned, but we have seen cases trending down rapidly basically everywhere. Yeah. So do we want to see that continue? Or do you want to stop it right here in Plateau? That's the question here. 
So why are we so eager to remove the most impactful and cheapest mitigation tool we have and the least disruptive in our lives, frankly? We're not talking here about lockdowns. We're not talking here about vaccine mandates, vaccine passports, distancing, capacity limits, any of that stuff. We're talking here about a piece of cloth over your face. And in some industries, that is more disruptive than others. I'm talking, obviously, about restaurants and so forth. But for most of us, the power of a mask is that you can control it yourself. Mm -hmm. And even if everybody around you has made bad decisions, they're not vaccinated, they have a lot of exposures, maybe they got symptoms, a properly worn N95 mask removes a big chunk of that risk and keeps the power in your hands. Now, one could argue that you still have the power to wear one, even if the rest of the world doesn't, and that's true. But at a population level, if we're making sure that most people are still wearing masks, the, um, the reduction in transmission will be meaningful. So given all that, and I know you might not understand the rationale, but, but what kind of arguments have we been hearing from governments and public health officials for the ending of these mandates? Why are they doing this? Yeah, not very good arguments from where I sit. I think the first one is we're doing it because other people have done it. Hmm. And uh, we're talking about Denmark, UK, some US states. But we are not those places. We're quite different in, in some ways. The other reason is there's a public desire for it. Absolutely, I understand that. There's a, a symbolism associated with the masks. If you look at any iconography, uh, the pictures above any newspaper article or blog post about COVID, the image is always someone wearing a mask. So you take away that image, suddenly there's a feeling that maybe we're at the end of this. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. And also I think there's an element of surrender here, of accepting a, a new reality around transmission. And I don't think that's an appropriate way to go. But mostly I think it's where some people are looking around the world and seeing what other places are doing, and they haven't suffered for it deeply yet. Uh, and I think uh, if we're going to take that rationale, we should probably wait a little longer to see what happens to those places before we follow suit. First of all, I guess, how are we different from those places that you mentioned? And, and second of all, what have we seen from them so far then? Do, is there anything that could guide us? So Denmark is the obvious example because they did away with all restrictions uh, a few weeks ago. And what we're seeing is their numbers skyrocketed. Um, their hospitalizations and their deaths. And there is some controversy there. How many of that has to do with being with COVID rather than being caused by COVID? And that's a fair question at this point. Um, and the, the data boffins are trying to figure that out. It looks like anywhere between 30 and 60% of the deaths or hospitalizations are because of COVID, not hmm. just with COVID. So that's a meaningful number. But Denmark is different from us in the way their healthcare system works. They have more healthcare capacity. They have uh, less equity issues than we do. They have a greater reliance upon each other uh, to behave appropriately to reduce risk at an individual level, not a state level. And people need to remember that Canada, amongst OECD nations, we're in the bottom 10 in terms of hospital beds per capita. The bottom 10. Right. And if we're talking here about acute beds, we're like second from the bottom. We don't have a lot of hospital capacity to mess with. As a result, we should be more conservative about removing mitigation strategies if it threatens our healthcare system. Well, let me play devil's advocate one more time then. Given all that, if not now, when cases are trending down, the weather is getting warmer, um, things are looking up, when? You know, this is one of the questions I really wrestle with because it, it does seem like you can always find metrics that will indicate that it's not a good time now. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's why we have to be uh, objective and state our cutoffs, our thresholds 
uh, a priori. The CDC has done so. So the CDC says you need indoor masking when you have 50 COVID cases per every 100,000 people in your population or a test positivity rate of at least 8%. So anything above those numbers, they say you should maintain an indoor masking mandate. Guess what? We are well over 50 cases per 100,000 people in pretty much everywhere in Canada. Mm-hmm. So we're, we've blown that threshold out the water. There are other indicators we can look at. I like to think of them in terms of um, three categories, population indicators, epidemiology ones, and healthcare capacity ones. So the population indicators are vaccination rates. If you have a very, very high vaccination rate, preferably three doses, you can be well assured that uh, not only will transmission be curtailed, but the challenge of the healthcare system will be small. The epidemiology indicators are things like the number of new cases per day. Um, that's difficult to measure because we don't test as much as we should be. Right yeah. now. And the last, of course, is the system indicators. So how much space do we have in the hospitals? When those three indicator groups are are below thresholds that we can argue about, then I think it's safe to take more mitigation tools off the table. And I think it's time, by the way, to start taking tools you know, off the table. But the last one to go should be the masks, in my opinion. What tools do you think it's fair to look at taking off the table, um, given generally the situation in this country? I think capacity limits don't have the same bang for your buck as other things. And, and the reason for that is we're talking here about an aerosolized disease. So whether it's 20 people in a room versus 40 people in a room, well, you've got virus floating around that room mm-hmm. and you're going to be exposed to it regardless. The rationale for capacity limits is twofold. One is uh, a lower number of people means a lesser probability that one of them is going to be infected and infectious. Now with Omicron, pretty much everyone. Right. <laughs> you assume everyone's got it. Um, and also, uh, the capacity limits are based on the assumption that everyone's trying to keep two meters apart. So number of people is limited to, to the number of people you can you can put into a space and maintain that distance. Distancing, to my mind, doesn't have the same impact because this is an aerosolized disease, and the longer you spend in a confined area, that disease will make its way to you, which is why the ventilation and the mask wearing continue to be impactful. They, they protect you against the failure of distancing. So distancing capacity limits can go pretty soon, I think. At the same time as we're talking about those restrictions ending and masks ending, you know, the last time we spoke to you was at the beginning uh, of the Omicron wave, and uh, you you were optimistic, and um, so was I, and maybe it didn't work out that way. But now that <laughs> now that we're doing this, at the same time as these restrictions are vanishing, I've heard about a subvariant of Omicron called uh, BA2. Can you tell me what it is and, and what do we know about it so far? Yeah, um, this is, as you mentioned, a, a version of Omicron. Now, I'm an epidemiologist, not a virologist, and the difference is the epidemiologists deal with the math and the virologists deal with the actual biology of what's going on here. So I don't want to overstep my expertise. But they, they do call this stealth Omicron because it, um, it's harder to detect due to its genetic makeup, and our PCR tests have a harder time sort of easily figuring out if, if you've got this or not. But what we do know is that it's at least 30% more transmissible than Omicron Prime, BA1. And uh, one Japanese study found 30%. The Danes found it has more immune escape properties, so our vaccines are less able to stop it. However, There is a South African study showing that the risk of hospitalization is on par with the risk from BA1, from the original Omicron. So it may not be as severe. And take that with a bit of a grain of salt, though, because South Africa is a younger population, so they're less likely to be hospitalized anyway. Right. 
different symptoms. So BA2 apparently leads to dizziness and fatigue and things like that. Is that that added transmissibility that is concerning? It'll it'll reach the unprotected more easily, and uh, will keep the numbers high as a result. What do we know about its status so far in Canada? I've seen from Denmark that it has almost taken over there. What's it doing here? Well, according to uh, Dr. Tam, it's uh, about ten percent of our cases is BA2, which is pretty high, and that proportion is increasing. So it seems likely that it will eventually be the dominant version here, I think, um, before too long. Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, a Sirius XM podcast available everywhere. Given its proximity to Omicron and the fact that uh, we're at the tail end, hopefully, uh, of a pretty huge wave, what's the potential for uh, BA2 causing another wave like this one as it takes over? I think the potential is is high. Not guaranteed, not at all, but high-ish. And the reason is this. Waves happen for two reasons. One is that there are a sufficient number of susceptible people to become infected. And two there are insufficient measures to prevent those people from being exposed further. So in terms of susceptibility, we have a large number of of people with only two doses of vaccine. And as we know, uh, Omicron can uh, get past those defenses and infect you, even though the the two doses dramatically lower your risk of hospitalization and death. Let's get that out of the way first. But they don't appreciably lower your risk of infection Mm -hmm. as much as they used to. So that means a large number of people are susceptible to BA2 infection. And for those who got Omicron and recovered, yeah, you may have some limited immunity right now that makes it harder to be infected by BA2, but not guaranteed. And there's still a very large number of people who have not had Omicron who are susceptible. So point one, a large number of susceptible people. Number two, we are right now talking about removing all these mitigation strategies so that large number of susceptible people is about to be exposed Mm -hmm. to an incredibly contagious variant. So I think it's likely that we'll see uh, another wave. Will it be as serious? Um, I don't know. Uh, will it lead to as, ma- as many hospitalizations? Possibly not, given the increasing amounts of population immunity out there. But if we're defining waves as new cases, yeah, I think it's likely. I'm not going to focus too much on Ontario here, but I want to use it as an example just because, uh, as you mentioned, you do the math, and at least here, uh, we have some numbers to work with. So just as an example, the chief medical officer of health said yesterday that the cases in Ontario are likely still 10 times or more the number of positive tests. And, and you know, we've been around 1,500 to 2,000. So if that means we're having fifteen to 20,000 cases a day and we're still seeing hospitalizations decline, like, doesn't that, and again, this is why I'm asking you, but doesn't that kind of show us like we're, we're coming out of this? Well, the end of what? The end of this wave? Yeah, absolutely. The end of the epidemic? No. Hmm. The end of the challenge to hospitals? Maybe. So Canada as a whole, we still have a higher hospitalization rate than at any other time of the pandemic due to to COVID. So this is where we're going to plateau. That's not good. Um, And some of that is with COVID versus caused by COVID. Absolutely. I think that's an important conversation to have, but that's not enough to, to assure me that the crisis is past. 
So um, in Ontario, I think among the hospitalized, anywhere between 40 and 50% of the hospitalized are because of COVID. And we don't know what proportion of those in the hospital are for reasons that were worsened by COVID. So right. I want to make sure people understand that just because there are some incidental cases, that is not a reason to dismiss this offhand. So yeah, I think there are signs that the wave is almost over. But the end of the pandemic, I uh, don't think so. Uh, spring will show even better numbers. BA2 is a wild card. Vaccination will hold the numbers down. Mask wearing will slow them even further. So a lot of this depends on what happens next and what choices we make next. Since we're speaking, uh, hopefully, I guess, about the end of the pandemic at some point, um, for a year and a half of this pandemic, we spent a lot of time talking about how we will reach herd immunity, and there was debate as to whether we would do that through vaccinations or whether we would do that through infection. But there was there was always kind of this sense that whatever happened, we would eventually reach it. Um, and if is that still true? And and if not, why not? Because it's certainly when you look at the numbers of people who are catching COVID right now, combined with our vaccination numbers, which are really high, like. It looks like there's not that many more people out there for this thing to find. Yeah, that, that's um, a seductive thought. And again, I want to reiterate that the epidemiology is about the math, the immunology is about the biology. Yep. So there are aspects of the biology I can't opine about. For example, whether an upper respiratory infection triggers more robust, durable immunity. Some uh, immunologists say that it doesn't. That's concerning. So regarding the math, though, herd immunity varies with contagiousness. So the more contagious uh, a, a disease is, the higher the threshold we need for immune people to stop its spread. And Omicron is crazy, crazy contagious. And BA2 is even more crazy contagious. As a result, we need close to 100% of people to achieve some level of, of immunity um, to stop this thing in its tracks. So we probably can't eliminate it entirely via the classic herd immunity calculations that we're used to in, in basic math class. What's more likely is that we get to a point where enough people have been vaccinated and infected, possibly repeatedly, where we'll still see cases popping up fairly regularly, but the number of serious ones won't be enough to challenge the healthcare system. So that's a different way of thinking about herd immunity for most people. And some people make that distinction, herd immunity versus population immunity. So the herd immunity suggests that enough people are immune, this thing can find a foothold and it goes away. Population immunity suggests that there is enough overall immunity in the population that it won't be a serious concern to most people. I think that's where we're going to get to eventually. How do we get there right now then? You know, you mentioned Denmark earlier and how we're so different in terms of hospital capacity. Can we build beds and, and dig our way out of this that way? Like at that point, yeah. it just becomes a disease we have to deal with, right? Yeah, we can't build healthcare capacity. This is an important point. Um, what is healthcare capacity? It's not physical beds. Most healthcare capacity is healthcare workers. And we are tragically at the very low end of that scale in terms of OECD mm -hmm. nations again. It takes decades to rebuild that capacity. We have to be, start now. There are things we can do in the short, short run. We can license foreign doctors and nurses faster. Right. We can promote students faster. Is that a wise thing to do? I'm not sure, but there are things we can do. That won't fill those gaps enough. So we got to rebuild our system from the ground up, but it will take years. 
So that's why I'm an advocate for slowing transmission as much as we can while keeping the economy running. Like lockdowns, no, we don't need that anymore. We don't need school closures if we do this smartly. But we have to do it smartly. So am I optimistic about this? Yeah, because we have the capacity to do these things. It's the political will and the public tolerance we have to worry about. Last question then, and I'm going to challenge your optimism once again here. Um, as I mentioned last time, uh, you mentioned to us that you were an optimist in general. I want to ask you, what's the optimistic look at dropping all these restrictions that is still in line maybe with science and data? Is it possible? Is there a world in which we drop these things, whether it's wise or not, and, and everything's okay? Well, if you look around the world, you know, American states, Denmark, UK, that have dropped many restrictions, the apocalypse has not happened. There aren't bodies on the streets. Mm. So civilization will stand. That's a low bar. That's a low bar, right? <laughs> but for some people, that's all they want. <laughs> we're at the point now where we're mostly protecting key elements of our society. I'm talking about kids under five who can't be vaccinated, the immunocompromised, the disabled, the uh, extreme elderly. Um, because we have vaccination. And vaccination allows us now to have the, uh, the strategy of focusing on certain groups more than others. So if we do take that path, we'll probably be okay, but there'll be suffering in some groups that I would like to avoid. Mm. On, a, on a larger scale, though, we have to remember that even if we do everything wrong, all pandemics end, even this one, uh, sooner or later. But the choices we make now determine whether it'll end soon rather than late and how much pain it'll take to get there. I'm fond of reminding people of the Russian flu uh, or Asiatic flu, which one it is, of the late 19th century. Some people think that that was caused by a coronavirus. I think the particular coronavirus is called OC43. And the reason they think that is now there's evidence that uh, some of the symptoms involve loss of taste and smell. If indeed it was caused by OC43, guess what? OC43 today is one of the viruses that causes the common cold. Right. So all it takes is some uh, decades of accruing population immunity, and this will become another common cold, possibly. I'll let the virologists say whether or not that is true. So my optimism is that over time, we will be fine. Uh, my bigger concern is for the world outside of Canada that doesn't have access to vaccines or, or mm -hmm. to our new high-quality treatments. And by the way, the treatments are quite inspiring, the antivirals. That's, a, that's an element of optimism we haven't talked about. Right. Um, and that changes the dynamic considerably. We can get these new tools and technologies to the rest of the world. We'll be in a much better place. I'm going to sneak in one more quick question uh, before you go, just because our producer, Joe Fish, asked it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering the same basic thing right now, which is, how would you feel about going to a Raptors game next week? <laughs> I personally would not, because I have a child under five who's not vaccinated. Yeah. And this is what I mean by risk being not equal across the population. Different people are going to have to make different choices. However, if I did not have that person in my life to protect, or the elderly or so forth, I would go, because I'm triply vaccinated, and I'm a, a youngish, healthy guy. And so my risk of a bad outcome from this disease is low. And there is space in the hospital system now to absorb me. I would wear a mask, though. I wear an N95 mask, but I would go through my life with confidence and interact in my society with confidence. Dr. Dean Anden, thank you, as always, uh, for a realistic look at what we're facing. My pleasure, as always. Dr. Raywat Dianandan, a global health epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. 
Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Tell us if you're ready to take off your mask. You can also write to us at TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. And you can find this podcast anywhere you get yours. Remember to rate and review and subscribe and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.